Welcome to the show. I'm so glad you're here. I'm Braxton Hunter, and this is Trinity Radio. And today we're going to be talking about Rhett from the YouTube channel Good Mythical Morning as he talks about his spiritual deconstruction. If I don't want to believe that every religious experience of any person who is not a Christian is ultimately illegitimate, then why would I? The majority of people who have ever lived are going to spend eternity being literally tortured in a fire, experiencing never-ending pain and suffering, then why, no pun intended, in the hell would I believe that? Kind of felt like a part of my everyday experience. You feel like you know these people even if you don't. Everybody says that. It felt that way, and so it felt almost like a personal friend had uh, deconverted, so to speak. Now, I approach this issue with a a fair amount of sobriety. Um, I I don't want to run in here too cavalier. And I almost want to say this. I I highly doubt that Rhett is ever going to see this video, but I kind of want to say all of this as though, Rhett, you're watching and as though you're seeing this because I want to speak to someone who I think I kind of understand where you're coming from in a a large respect. I definitely know where you, I, I definitely know where you're coming from insofar as I understand your background. Um, in fact, that's one of the things that I've always enjoyed about Good Mythical Morning. Um, for about three years, uh, my daughters and I have watched Good Mythical Morning as a pretty standard practice uh, at night. Um, it's changed a little bit here lately, but it used to be the case that it was our favorite thing to do, spend family time, you know, and part of that was watching Good Mythical Morning because it was wholesome entertainment and uh, it felt a lot like two guys who dreamed this up in a church youth group somewhere. You know, a lot of the stuff that goes on on the show. And it had about that level of content. You know, I, I could feel comfortable letting my kids watch this. And it was only a bonus when I found out that Rhett and Link were evangelical Christians. Because, hey, another way that they're like me. You know, th- these guys are a part of my tribe. They're from the South, you know, uh, North Carolina, I think. I've been all over North Carolina. was uh, raised during my teenage years in Nashville, Tennessee. Pastored a church in a place called McMinnville, Tennessee, which was um, a small town. You know, I kind of understand where you guys have come from. And, uh, and, and I, I appreciated all of that. And it just, it's just, you know, you could relate then to the people on the screen. And I thought that was pretty cool. So it was sad, and I have to say, heartbreaking, honestly, when someone sent a link to this video. One of our viewers last night sent me a link to this video about uh, Rhett's spiritual deconstruction. Uh, because I very much do view this, however you want to frame this up in terms of your personal doctrine of salvation, if you're a Christian out there, I view this as someone who was among us, who has gone out from us, someone who was a part of my group, part of my crew. And, um, and, and that's sad. That's, that's really uh, sad, especially someone who kind of felt like, uh, you know, a part of my everyday experience. You know how it is. It sounds a little bit cheesy, but when you read a particular book, author a lot or listen to a particular podcast or a YouTube channel, you feel like you know these people even if you don't. Everybody says that. And that's kind of how I felt about these guys. They have no clue who I am. And again, probably will never see this video, but it felt that way. And so it felt almost like a personal friend had uh, deconverted, so to speak. Now, spiritual deconstruction is what the uh, title of the video says. And everybody, I think, who is a reasonably well-educated person living in the Western world, uh, even if you're not living in the Western world, but particularly in our science-heavy, education-heavy Western context, we're going to go through this time of deconstruction, spiritual deconstruction. I went through it. For those that that know my story, I have a friend who began to experience same 
same-sex attraction in college or in uh, in high school, and then in college he uh, he identified as a gay man, and that led to a process in which he thought, "Can I hold on to the Bible?" <clears throat> and um, this lifestyle, and then ultimately he decided he has to pick one or the other, either the gay lifestyle or biblical Christianity. And he had to make a choice, and he made a choice for the gay lifestyle. Eventually embraced atheism and then began to challenge my faith. And at that point, I did this whole thing that he describes uh, throughout this episode. I took my faith apart um, and put it back together. And uh, this is particularly interesting because I was pastoring a church at this time. Um, and I, so I, I, I went through all these same issues. I read The Case for Christ. I, I looked at the scientific stuff. What about evolution? I read some of the same books that he's talking about having read. And uh, I think that spiritual deconstruction is a good thing. Um, and, but when I put mine back together, some doctrinal positions changed, but it didn't change—I uh, I didn't reject Christianity. And as I've often said, it rattled me, but not in the sense that— um, it caused this severe amount of doubt. It rattled me in the sense that I wanted to give an answer that I didn't know how to give. I very much embrace William Lane Craig's uh, position on this, which is it's it's through apologetics that we show that Christianity is true. It's by the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives that we know that Christianity is true. And Red gets into this a little bit at some point in the episode, and we're going to look at a couple of clips, but at some point in the episode, he talks about how what he was left with after he dealt with all the evidence was nothing more than what the Mormons basically have when they say they know it's true, Mormonism is true, because they experience a burning in the bosom or something, you know, just something, an internal testimony that this is true. Well, if that's all that any religion said, it wouldn't mean that one of them was not true and that that was not a legitimate experience. So I think all of that needs to be uh, considered when we when we take a look at this. But we're going to talk a little bit about the evidence because I have to say, Rhett does talk about the role that evidence played in this. And though I don't know if, Rhett, if you would agree with this, I don't, I don't know how, how you would interpret this. Um, from what I pick up uh, during the course of the uh, episode, it sounds very much like it wasn't that there was no evidence for the truth of the Christian message. Now, he might say that, uh, but I don't think he would, considering he talked about how it's still a reasonable position to believe in God and, to, uh, and all those kind of things. It, it sounded more like uh, the evidence doesn't give me certainty. And if the evidence doesn't give me certainty, then I, I, why would I believe this given certain ramifications that it has? And we're going to get to that point in just a few minutes when we look at the list of things that he says, why would I believe this? Um, when I don't have to, if it says this uh, thing. Um, he says that throughout the whole thing that he was trying to pursue truth and that that was what Christianity was supposed to offer was truth, and I appreciate and admire that. And so uh, I think that should be our guiding principle as we look at some of what he says. But but deep down, I want to speak for, you know, I don't want this, this could so easily become just about the evidence. When it's not just about the evidence, nothing is ever just about the evidence, despite what some people say. And my, as I kind of pour out my heart to someone who it felt like I knew, even though I know how that sounds, because it's a YouTube personality, um, who has no idea who I am, my heart pouring out to, to Rhett and, and perhaps to Link w- would be that, I am a voice, I'm sure you have a lot of voices like this in your life, I, I'm not naive to that. I am a voice who's going to take you at your word that 
this is not just because you moved to L.A. and those wicked L.A. people uh, convinced you against Christianity. Um, they said in the show that, that that's what a lot of people might think. That, that's not what I'm doing here. I'm not here to talk about whether or not you were ever really a Christian or not, that whole salvation, soteriology, doctrinal position. That's somewhat secondary to what I want to say. I believe that you were being genuine in the video, and I just want to genuinely, as someone who is out of that tribe, uh, number one, unashamedly, I, I can't, I don't care how this sounds to people or how uncool uh, to call you back to, I'm praying that you will come back. Um, I'm praying that you will see the truth of this. Um, I know that you're a very intelligent person. I don't mean for that to sound in the least bit condescending, but as someone who used to, to be very evangelistic from what you say, I think you understand where I'm coming from. And so I'm, I'm gently calling you, not gently, I'm boldly calling you back to this, to trust Christ and to repent of your sins and to come back. And secondly, to talk a little bit about the reasons why you rejected that you give. There may be other things that are not given, but the things that you give, and to give a response from a Christian apologist. One of the things that Rhett says in this thing is, is he says that he, he went through a time of a little bit of anger toward the intellectual voices who he thought misrepresented the evidence and, and that sort of thing. And we're going to talk a little bit about that. Um, <clears throat> but I am such a person. I am an intellectual voice out here, an apologist who's not... I don't I hope I don't misrepresent anything, but but someone in that group, and if that if things were misrepresented to you, I apologize for that because that's not what we want to do. As someone who teaches apologetics at the seminary level, um, I constantly tell people not to overstate their case. We don't want to use hyperbole when it comes to the evidence, and so I, I'm endeavoring to be that sort of a voice for you now because I, I want, but I want to examine and probe what is said here. Uh, and, and not just for Rhett and Link, but for anyone else who may view this, who may have been moved by what Rhett said, um, to be realistic about those doubts, be real, realistic about what both sides of this issue look like. So uh, basically, Rhett walks through a few things. He walks through <clears throat> uh, evolution, young earth creationism versus um, evolution, and how that kind of started this process. He had, he, I think he said he already had questions about like how we got the Bible, and that didn't seem like it happened the way he thought it did. But then it was really evolution, and that whole discussion as he began to study that, and then that led to, well, what does that mean for Adam and Eve, and what does that mean for the Old Testament, and what does that mean for... Um, and then he, he finally lastly came to Jesus. He had kind of been holding off on that because he thought, as long as I can hold on to Jesus, then I'm still a Christian, and I don't have to give all of this stuff up. And he came to Jesus, and that is a very interesting moment in the discussion where he uh, explains uh, how that went. And uh, again, I want you to listen through this, and I want you to consider um, it, it, that it sounds to me like what he's saying is, I couldn't have absolute certainty about this, so why in the end, and then in the end he comes to, so why would I believe it if I don't have to? Um, which is, and I'm not, I really am trying to represent him carefully but is odd considering that he said he didn't want to give this up and that there was like this, this note that resonated with him about the truth of it, which frankly I take as a little bit of internal evidence for the truth of it. That may well be that work of the Spirit. Um, just because the Mormons have a burning in the bosom and, uh, and, and all that doesn't mean that there's not a genuine uh, experience of the Holy Spirit. And in fact, I don't necessarily question... Uh, that there is a real experience that the Mormons have, but we'll get to that in just a few moments. So let's begin as he's talking about evolution 
And so uh, I should set it up with what, what, he, what he basically said was he read this book by Francis Collins, the former head of the Human Genome Project, who is a Bible-thumping evangelical Christian. We did a whole show on Francis Collins not too long ago. And how Collins is a theistic evolutionist. He's a, he's a believer, but he affirms evolution. And so that really rattled him. That, that really, he, he read that, and he read some of what Collins said. And so Red actually uh, uh, kind of goes through a detailed explanation of how Collins talks about the genetic information that seems to be left over from, uh, or that we seem to share from a previous common ancestor that we have with other primates. And he explains all that and says, look, the genetic evidence here seems to be pretty powerful and uh, lays all that out and then kind of is like, well, what, what am I supposed to do with that? But then he comes to talking about the fossil record. And so let's begin listening right here. Um, this made me just question, like, all this stuff, you've been told all this stuff, like, I had been told that there were no transitional fossils. There were no transitional forms. There's no transitional between this animal and this animal. Well, it turns out there's a lot of them. There's a lot of very convincing ones. Uh, I've been told that there were really no vestigial structures, that there's nothing on your body or an animal's body that's like a sign of something that's no longer being used. There's always a use for it, and we keep finding <clears throat> those use for it. Well, Okay, so he goes through that. One thing I wanted to start out with was it seems here that he's been a victim of some hyperbole. So a lot of the books that he mentions, and I'm not trying to pigeonhole him with this, but but the books that he talks about reading The Case for Christ, listening to Ravi Zacharias speak, uh, he mentions these names, listening to other Christian apologists. These are like, um, even Francis Collins' book are, are somewhat popular level books by Christians and popular level explanations. Even some of the atheist book, at least one of the atheist books I think he mentioned, uh, I think is a is a popular level book. Uh, when some of the things that, that give you the best uh, stuff, the, the, the deepest challenges to what the objections to Christianity are, come from journal articles, come from uh, books from Oxford University Press, come from these, these uh, more scholarly uh, sources. And so uh, the case for Christ has its place, but if, you're, if it's not good enough for you, if you've still got more questions, there's obviously elsewhere to go. Now, since he's been saying, since he says he's been looking at this since the mid-2000s, I believe that um, he's aware of some of those things, and perhaps he looked at some of those issues. And granted, he's, he's doing a podcast here. This is for his YouTube audience, who are not necessarily entrenched in this whole worldview discussion. So he, he might not be going into all of that sort of thing. But what we see here is that he heard from some uh, primarily creationist voices, young earth creationists, and, <clears throat> and, and, and he might have heard some hyperbolic sort of language about this. Well, uh, it, it took me right back to William Lane Craig's Defenders class where he talked about evolution and creation. Now, while I don't personally accept evolution, I'm also not a young earther. And I want you, uh, you know, I'm, I'm more than anything else, I'm a, I don't know earther, right? Because the Bible nowhere intends to give you um, the age of the earth. And there are so many genre issues that need to be kept in mind when we look at uh, Genesis chapter 1 and any passage of the Bible. And there have been people throughout church history that have not necessarily understood Genesis 1 the way that some uh, young earthers understand it. And that's an important thing that needs to be kept in mind. But here he talks about how the genetic information was really compelling to him, and what he had heard about the fossil record wasn't really, uh, he, he didn't find it to be accurate. 
Well, uh, let's go to William Lane Craig's uh, Defenders class. William Lane Craig is uh, one of the top American philosophers, Christian or otherwise, today, and he teaches actually a Sunday school class. It's kind of funny because a lot of the answers we hear um, that, that I think Rhett was used to hearing from growing up were like Sunday school type answers. Now, I realize that he did his investigation, but here's a Sunday school class from none less than one of the uh, top American philosophers today, William Lane Craig. Now, William Lane Craig is not a biologist, but that's very important to his, you know, what he does in terms of Christian defense and, and looking at design arguments. And he's not here giving you the results of his uh you know, chemical studies and things like that. What he's doing here is he's he's pulling together some of the best scholarly information on this and giving you where it's at. And this is what he has to say after surveying some of these things. So, by way of summary, the data concerning the doctrine of common ancestry are mixed. I think that the genetic evidence does lend support uh, for it, but the fossil evidence seems to tend against it. The absence of transitional forms in the fossil record, combined with the evidence of genetics, suggests that if the thesis of common ancestry is true, then something is wrong with the explanatory mechanisms of neo-Darwinism. The explanatory mechanisms need to give a good account of both the genetic and the fossil evidence. And so and so he says, next time we're going to talk more about that. So what he what he kind of sets up here is, look, we've got, and this is not something that's unknown to people that work in this field. You've got two things at play here. The genetic evidence, the kind of thing that, that Rhett lays out in the show, is is powerful. That that may be true. On the other hand, the, the fossil record, let's not let's not overblow this. There there are some problems here. And there are people that are trying to work on those problems. And just like he says, look, I've heard the, what the young earth creationists say about various things, and I don't find it compelling. Well, yeah, look at how uh, you know, uh, evolutionary biologists account for the, the, the fossil issues and ask yourself, does that sound plausible? Here we've got a guy, William Lane Craig, who uh, is not where I'm at on this issue, but where he's at is he's like, I'm just trying to look at this and follow the evidence. You want someone that's looking for the truth? Rhett, I'm looking for the truth. And here's where I'm at. I'm not where your young earth creationist uh, voices are at. I'm saying, it sounds like what he's saying is, hey, it looks like this genetic stuff. I grant you, it's powerful stuff. Just like you think, just like Francis Collins thought, uh, thinks. Uh, on the other hand, there is this issue here, and we can't just go full bore with this thing. We got to deal with this other issue, the issue with the fossil record. And maybe there has been hyperbole about it in the past, but there are still problems, and we got to deal with what those problems are. So what seems to be the best explanation? Craig seems to be saying, for my money, and I don't want to put words in his mouth either, but it seems like he's saying, from where my money is, it looks like, perhaps, that, uh, some, that, that, that there's something to this uh, common descent thing, but the mechanisms that are on offer from naturalism don't seem to get you there. And so perhaps we need something like what could be called progressive creationism or uh, uh, a theistic evolution, some, th some sort of a guided process. Um, you know, th that sort of a thing wouldn't satisfy most uh, young earth creationists, and I'm not there myself. But it is to say that if, you, if, you, if you're trying to look for, I mean, it's not like you've got these, he does talk about biologos, which is a group of mostly theistic evolutionists, I think, if not com entirely. But it's not like you've got the young earth creationists and then the biologos crowd and then naturalism. There's a spread here. 
And if we're looking for the truth, the truth might be some combination. And it seems like that's where, um, even if you're granting what some of these naturalistic biological evolutionists say, maybe somewhere in the middle. Now, for me, that, that's not where I'm at. But I'm just saying, if you're following this, um, th- there are options out here. There are answers out here. But I'm the kind of person that has often said, if I become, became convinced of evolution, it wouldn't necessarily mean that I'm not a Christian anymore. And in fact, Brett says, that was kind of where I was at first. I thought, hey, maybe evolution's true, but I can still be a Christian. But then he landed on another problem that he thought he had that leads to some doctrinal issues and problems for the Bible as a whole. And so he comes to the Adam and Eve question, and this is what he has to sort say. Sort of accept evolution. One camp believes that Adam and Eve are still real, uh, and that they are either a special creation or they're sort of the result of the process, but they're actually real historical people because they need to be real and historical in order for the fall and then the gospel to kind of make sense. Got to be honest, I did not find all of those arguments felt really tenuous and just felt like you guys are, you know that you have to have, you have to have Adam and Eve, and so you're sort of inserting them in in a way that isn't, they're not really fitting as a little, you know, square peg round hole situation. I remember uh, the, the, the Tim Keller book, Reason for God. Yeah. I remember discussing that at that time and that being, as I remember it, his position. Yeah, and this is problematic though because I didn't, it basically I was like, I just don't think there's a way that Adam and Eve were real as presented in the Bible, but like I said earlier, you know, they're presented uh, genealogy of Jesus in the book of Luke. So, I, what, what, what's the deal, y'all? <laughs> you know what I'm saying? This, this, was, this was a problem. This is a problem. Um, but what this did, again, I just felt like this doubt was kind of creeping beyond the point of creation, and it was creeping into the Old Testament itself, because that's the way. Okay, so he has this problem with Adam and Eve. Now, I want you to notice here, I Again, I'm not a theistic evolutionist, but if I am, if I was a theistic evolutionist, would I be committed not to believe that there's an Adam and Eve? Is there anything about theistic evolution that precludes the existence of Adam and Eve? Uh, Here's, again, what William Lane Craig has to say about this. Yes, Brad. Um, I think the last time we met... uh we talked about Adam and Eve, yeah. and and they are clearly defined in in, in Genesis. Um, how, how are Adam and Eve and their story and the Garden of Eden and the and, and all of that? How how is that compatible with evolution? Right. This question I think deserves more discussion later on, because some of the contemporary theistic evolutionists have argued that um, the biological theory of evolution is incompatible with an original human pair, Adam and Eve. And yet, the scripture seems to think of Adam and Eve as literal historical examples. They're connected by the genealogies with other persons who are indisputably historical, and there's no suggestion that there's some kind of a break there. However figurative or metaphorical the creation of Adam and Eve might be, in Genesis, they do seem to be historical persons. And so one would need to deal with this objection that evolutionary theory is incompatible with a historical Adam and Eve. I I need to look into that some more because it's not clear to me that if a person thinks that Adam and Eve were created through the process of evolution, let's say 
God caused mutations that caused a hominid form to evolve to a brain capacity and a physical capacity that could now be the seat of a human soul. And then God imparted to that body a human soul so that it now becomes a genuine human being. It's not clear to me why there couldn't be an original Adam and Eve of that sort. This is essentially the Catholic view that even though our human bodies are the result of biological evolution, you don't have a, a real human being until there's a soul united with the body. And that's a special creation of God that occurs at a specific time in the, in the past, and that therefore you have a historical Adam and Eve. And it's not clear to me why these theistic evolutionists think that that's impossible. I, I think their arguments are targeting someone who thinks that there was an original Adam and Eve that were special creations ex nihilo by God. And I think they're saying that's incompatible with the genetic evidence. But I don't see how that would be contrary to what the Catholic view is, for example. So that, that needs to be explored further. See, uh, again, as I'm, as I'm kind of putting on this hat of a theistic evolutionist, I really don't see why that's a problem either. I, I agree with Craig. Like, uh, you know that you know people would young earth creationists would take issue with even the mere suggestion but I, I, if you're if that's where you're at now there's a there's another point that needs to be made here he said something you'll notice craig said i don't know why that would be impossible um and Rhett said conversely Rhett said it seems like um they're just they're just throwing that in there uh, it's not like a square he said it's almost like a square peg in a round hole that that is absolutely not true because that would mean there's something contradictory about it um, and there's nothing contradictory about the explanation, the possibility that Craig just laid forward. Uh, there's, there's simply not a contradiction there. <clears throat> so it's not impossible that it's true. Now, what someone might say is, yeah, but, but, but what's the evidence for it? And here's where I want to say that what is happening here with people that hold a view like that is they're trying to look at all the evidence, like Rhett says he is, and I take him at his word, and they're looking at the uh, evidence that they see for biological evolution over here. And they're like, okay, I got all that evidence. But then they're looking at something like the evidence for the resurrection of Jesus. On the other hand, they're like, okay, that's powerful evidence. And it means generally that I can trust Jesus. And we'll get to gospel stuff in just a minute. But so how do I square these two things? Jesus seemed to think that Adam was a real historical figure. How do I square these things? Well, then you, you start squaring it this way, right? It's not some... It's not... Um, it's not as though when we come to a Bible story, we say, okay, now what good reason do I have to take this Bible story or this Bible story or this Bible story? It's <clears throat> if we have reasons generally to think that uh, the Bible story, the story of the Bible is generally is reliable, um, then, then these beliefs are there already. So when we come to a Bible story, we say, okay, since I know that the story is generally reliable, how do I make sense of this piece that I take to be reliable in light of this other fact from science? And so you start putting it together. So if you're committed to um, uh, the, the resurrection and the words of Jesus because of the resurrection at, on the basis of evidence, and you're committed to uh, biological evolution, something like this emerges. And as long as it's not impossible, what's the problem? Is the problem that we can't be certain? If the problem is that we can't be certain, we're going to come to that later, but uh, certainty, I think, um, is is what I really think as I listen to this, what we come to is a ret not being able to be absolutely 
100% like cartesianly certain about these things and because of that then why would i believe this if it leads to these other things and uh, i just as i said in the last video uh, on this channel i don't think that uh, cartesian certainty is helpful or necessary um, whether or not you think you can have it about anything uh, but let's 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 move forward now because Rhett then gets into talking a little bit more about uh, Jesus. I think this is where he's going to talk about Jesus a little bit. I could be wrong. Let's see. Also, a book called The Historical Jesus: Five Views, which kind of runs the spectrum, runs the gamut on how you can see this. But basically, what I just saw is that there's so many people coming at this with an intention to uncover the truth, to find the truth. And they're coming to these wildly different conclusions. This isn't like science. You know, somebody does a scientific experiment in 1985 in China, and then somebody does the same scientific experiment in 2019 in California. If, they, if everything is controlled, they're going to come to the same conclusion. That's not how history works. And it makes it very difficult to come to definitive conclusions about things. But essentially, in the end, by far to me personally, the most compelling and seemingly reasonable view was that the Gospels appear to be a mix of religious propaganda as well as actual history. So there's definitely some history in there. I think Jesus was a real person, so does Bart Ehrman. But I don't think that as he is presented there is completely reliable. That's what I was thinking at the time. So what did you believe about Jesus? You reached a conclusion about the person of Jesus at that time when you were, when you were researching that. I, I had a picture of Jesus that was the picture that I had always had of this person who did these miracles and died on the cross and rose again and died for my sins and was God in the flesh. All the things that were important to believe about him. But I had doubts about those things being true, but I didn't have another picture of Jesus. There was a picture of Jesus. So you read all these books, you did all this research about Jesus, but your conclusion was not really a conclusion at that point. Oh yeah, I was still in process. And so this was incredibly unsettling, right? Uh, this, is, this was way more unsettling than anything that had happened so far because this was Jesus. This was the core of everything. This is who my relationship was with and all of a sudden I've got very serious doubts about, uh, uh, about him. And I, I think that anyone that you would have conversations with and you did initiate with not only Jesse, but with me mm -hmm. and with other people that you confided in over over this decade of going through this, um, if you were talking to someone who was was still very much committed to their faith, it was like much more solid. I think the response, maybe it's not spoken, mm -hmm. is, well, yeah, as long as you. As long as you hold on to Jesus and, and you know, it's like that, you can't let go of that. You can let go of everything else, but you can't really let go of what you believe about Jesus raising from the dead and and paying the penalty for your sins instead of you. Yeah. Because either you go to hell or, or he does, which he already did and came back right. is the belief. So it's, you can let other stuff go and maybe not panic. And again, I'll, I'll share my, my perspective on interacting with you more next week, but I, at times that was part of it. Yeah, because what you believe about Jesus is paramount, but what you believe about Jesus is still based on what is presented in the Bible. If not, where else are you getting it? I mean, some people might be like, well, I'm getting it directly from God. Uh, 
but that's not what Christianity teaches. It's coming from God and the Bible, and they don't contradict one another. Okay, so we're going to let the comment about hell fly there for a minute. But uh, what I want to say here is, now notice, did you hear anything in there that undermined the resurrection hypothesis? Now, this is where I want to be a person. I don't want to just be some, you know, ap- you know, purveyor of apologetics, right? I don't want to be a computer. Rhett is a real person. Rhett, if you see this, I, I get that... I get the existential angst. I, I get the the doubt and the experience of that. Um, I've experienced doubt like that. But <clears throat> when we come to the to the Bible, I heard a couple of things. I heard one: he thinks that there is his historical material there, and that it's religious propaganda. And I heard that there he found out there were different views on this. Okay, and that history is not like um, as certain as we as we would like it to be. Um, all right. It doesn't give us the certainty we would like. There's a certainty again um, uh, that, that there are um, different opinions about this and that it seems like some history and some uh, propaganda. Okay, does any of that give you any reason to believe that it's not true? The answer is no. <laughs> what it might do is undermine some of the reasons you thought you had for believing that it's true, but none of it means that it's not true at all, in the least. Now, when we look at that, um, are, are there different views? Yes. And is history as certain as we'd like it to be? No. But guess what? That's actually powerful reasons to—that to, that's actually counts in favor of this. And I'll tell you why. Because guess what? The vast majority of historians and scholars today believe there was a man named Jesus. He died by Roman crucifixion under Pontius Pilate that the disciples had experiences after he was dead that they at least interpreted as appearances of the risen Christ and that they were willing to be persecuted harshly for this. Okay, now add to that the known facts that we can't deny that this is the most influential human being in all of history and that, uh, that art and science and architecture and everything else has been impacted by this man. You know, that, that's, that's just like a sort of a cumulative case piece of data throughout there. But when you consider that and plug that into, oh, another thing that has almost universal consensus is that Jesus, prior to the crucifixion, thought of himself as God's special kingdom agent, his special eschatological agent, his special agent to bring about the kingdom. He thought that. He died. Um, People had experiences that they interpreted as the risen Christ, and they were willing to be harshly persecuted for it. Now, if we only had those, does that give you certainty? No. Uh, Oh, also add to it that all atheistic hypotheses, all alternative hypotheses to the resurrection have been shot down to the point that atheists are encouraging others try not to come up with an atheistic hypothesis because the Christian apologists tend to shred it and, and, and cut them down. So if you just had those, is that not powerful evidence? I would hope that Rhett would say, yeah, that's evidence. That's, that, that counts for something, okay? What, what, what must he say in response? It doesn't give you certainty. And listen, this is on top of, hey, have you considered the very scholarly uh, stuff we have on this, uh, like Jesus and the Eyewitnesses by Richard Bauckham, Oxford University Press, uh, Press? Some of the problems that you might have with the Gospels that y- y- he references Bart Ehrman. What's Bart Ehrman's famous thing when he talks about differences in the Gospels? He says, it depends which Gospel you read. It depends which Gospel you read. 
have you read Michael Icona's um, Why Are There Differences in the Gospels? Also Oxford University Press, uh, which takes into account the genre of this. is agree, uh, The majority of scholars agree that it's either Greco-Roman biography or something that shares great affinities with Greco-Roman biography, and that with these things, these literary devices are there. There's predictive power there. If we take the literary devices known to exist in Greco-Roman biography from Plutarch, for example— we should expect that if we plug those into the Gospels, it's going to it's going to it's going to explain most of these differences, right? Guess what? When we plug them in, it does. Um, not going to use hyperbole. Not going to overshoot. There are still some tough passages that we have to wonder about, ask questions about. Perhaps something like Norman Geisler's harmonizations of those things are right, uh, but. But the, but but that's all there. I mean, these scholarly voices on this are powerful. Um, if you look at something like uh, Van Voorst's um, Jesus Outside of the New Testament, you, you just if you, if you look at it with this stuff, if you just go with like I grant you that we don't get the certainty we like out of uh, historiography, but if you just go with what the majority believe, that evidence has to count for something. Does it does it get you to certainty? No, but is that necessary? Is that necessary? That's a very important question to ask. And so I think what we have here is, remember, on this Jesus stuff, this is the most important thing. This is the thing he didn't want to give up. This is the thing that wrecked his life to give it up, or that he thought might wreck his life, I should say. Well, what did you encounter that, that took that away from you? Nothing. Nothing that was mentioned took it away. All that there could have been was, some of the reasons that I thought I had aren't there anymore. But actually, if you, if you plug in what the scholars do agree about, those things that you, that you probably used to have from the case for Christ or whatever, you still have those. It's just that it looks a little different when we consider genre stuff than you thought it did. So you might not have certainty, like Cartesian certainty, but what do you need that for? But without that certainty, we land on questions like this. And this is toward, uh, I guess, the middle of what, that, what Rhett has to say. And at, when I came to that conclusion, or I was, and I wasn't fully there, I was just considering, what does it feel like to think this? It led to a few more questions that I'd always been afraid to ask myself. I'm gonna read these because I wrote them down. These are just a few of the questions I'd always avoided. If I don't have to believe that God ordered his chosen people to slaughter men, women, and children by the thousands, then why would I? Okay, he's going to go through some of these things. If I don't have to believe that, why would I? Well, what do you mean by have to believe it? We're looking for truth here, right? This isn't about what we want to be true. This, now, he says, he says, um, if I don't have to believe it. So maybe what he means by that is, if there's not substantial evidence or sufficient evidence for me to conclude this must be the explanation, which again, I take to mean if I can't, if I don't have Cartesian certainty about this, if there's a way to not believe this, why would I believe it? Well, again, based on things he said previous in the show, I think he's talking about archaeological evidence related to the slaughter of the Canaanites or something and, and that sort of thing. But again, when we come to a biblical passage, we don't say necessarily... I'm only going to believe this little pericope if there's substantial evidence. We say, do I have reason to generally believe this? Okay, But when I come to that portion of it, the slaughter of the Canaanites, yeah, that's tough. That comes up all the time. But what does that actually look like? 
and again, I want to be personal. I don't want to be a, just an just a apologetics computer here. But, but what does that look like? That looks like um, God gave 400 years for people who were idolatrous, sacrificing their own children, and, and, and lighting fires and beating drums, walking around a statue with their children burning in the center. Uh, these are not good people. Warmongers. Um, justice had to be done. I've said this many times. If we captured Adolf Hitler and we just said, let's pat him on the back and tell him, now, now, don't ever do that again, that would not be good, right? It might be merciful, but in the worst possible way, to the extent that it's not good anymore. Our justice system would not be good if it didn't bring justice with respect to that. No, there needs to be a, a just penalty for what Hitler did, right? In the same way, these are people that God was merciful enough to give them 400 years to repent, and they wouldn't. And much of this was military outposts. And what happens? God brings justice. Now, it sounds really bad talking about um, the women and children that, that, that might have still been there, except for the fact that you're forgetting that if you're doing this internal critique, which is what we're talking about here, um, death is not the end. And these people are now in the arms of a loving God who would have perhaps grown up to be idolaters, who would have rebelled against God. Now, I'm not—here's the, here's the thing. If you're worrying that I'm going to raise up people to do something similar, the fact of the matter is we have no, no living president or king today has what Joshua had and what Moses before him had, which was— uh, as close to Cartesian certainty as can be had, the voice of God written on stone or heard audibly. You know, we don't have that today. And so that's very different. But if you take all those things into account, it would not have been good for God not to have brought that justice. We would not think, if you think it would have not been good to just pat Hitler on the back and let him go and say, don't do that again, then you understand it would not have been good for God not to have brought justice. But that internal criticism is completely missed. And when you understand that, uh, why would you believe it? Because that's what a good God would look like. If I don't want to believe that every religious experience of any person who is not a Christian is ultimately illegitimate, then why would I? If I don't have to... Okay, um, <clears throat> I don't think that. Uh, it depends on what you mean by legitimate. When we talk about the Mormon experiencing the burning in the bosom... I, don't, I think some of that is probably in some of their heads, but is it, on my worldview, is it possible that that is a real experience, that they're experiencing something supernatural? Yes. But I want, I want to know what is the content of that experience? What is the source of that experience? We don't necessarily question the legitimacy in that sense. Now, if you want to say that they're all equally legitimate or something, then now we're into just pure, uh, you know, relativism. And, but I think that Rhett... I don't think Rhett would want to go there. So you would have to understand that, um, you know, these can all be wrong, but they can't all be true, right? So, so that's an important thing. But in terms, of, in terms of their truth content, but in terms of legitimate in the sense of that they really are experiencing something supernatural, yeah, they might be. to believe that anyone who doesn't have a relationship with Jesus, i.e. the majority of people who have ever lived, are going to spend eternity being literally tortured in a fire, experiencing never-ending pain and suffering, then why, no pun intended, in the hell would I believe that? And 
if I can somehow accept the idea that hell exists because of God's holiness, why would I believe in a God who would choose to create that particular world where people have no choice whether or not they're going to be born, but then once they are born, if they don't adopt the correct understanding of God, he will punish them forever. Why believe in that God if I don't have to? Okay, now here we, a moment ago he did say, why would I believe if I didn't want to? Or, I, you know, uh, the, the, Again, this is not about what we want. Remember, this is about truth. We're looking for truth. And there are some things that are true that we don't like that we don't want to be true. I don't want it to be true that cancer exists, but my not wanting it to be true doesn't change the reality that cancer does exist. And if hell is real, you're not liking it or not wanting it to be true doesn't change the reality of hell for you or for anyone else. Now, I think that there was a little bit of a misunderstanding there. First of all, there are various views on the nature of hell held among evangelicals and have been since the early church, but we're not going to get into that. I have a whole, I've, we have three episodes on that on this channel. I encourage you to check it out. Secondly, it's important to understand that the, what he's talking about is what is known as the, the fate of the unevangelized. What happens to people who never hear the gospel? And he says the majority of people who've ever lived have not heard the gospel, and so they're going to be in hell, tortured for all eternity, and all those sorts of things. Um, it's important to know that while there are people who will call others out for this view, William Lane Craig who we played a moment ago, who is still currently probably the most well-known, uh, most lauded intellectual voice for Christianity today in the world. And Billy Graham, who passed away, but who uh, probably led more people to faith in Christ than anyone in the history of Christianity, which th that's saying a lot. Both of them have affirmed the view that Perhaps it's possible that God judges people based on the light that they are given. And, and so uh, through general revelation, if someone recognizes that there's a God, and they say, if I knew who that God was, I would trust him, that there are answers to that. That there are other, there are other options available. Uh, my, that's not my personal view. My personal view is, like Cornelius um, in Acts chapter 10, that if someone is open to, they respond to the revelation that they have, and they are open to more, that... Uh, perhaps God will send someone like he did for Cornelius. It's very interesting that according to the International Mission Board of the Southern Baptist Convention, when we reach someone in the 1040 window who has never heard the gospel, it is often, it is common to hear them say they were just praying that God would send them the truth about who he is. So uh, there are answers. I mean, <clears throat> honestly, I, I, I don't want to mischaracterize, but it does sound a bit like that what we have here is I had this view of young earth creationism. I didn't think too much about it when I was younger, but it, it was there. And um, I had this rigid understanding of the Bible, and I, and I had these doctrinal positions about Calvinism and about—he um, mentions that on the show—and about um, what that means for original sin and what that means for uh, Adam and Eve and, uh, and, and all these kind of things. And when that uh, you know, very, very conservative, very fundamentalist understanding— of Christianity wasn't exactly the way that it is. The evidence didn't quite sync up with that like I thought it should. Then the whole thing started to unravel, and I didn't have certainty anymore. And without certainty, why would I believe these things if I don't have to? And suddenly here it starts to change, and, uh, and I, I want to be faithful to what he's saying, because I do believe that he, he didn't want to give up his Christianity at first. But somewhere something changed. Because somewhere it seems like it went from, I'm trying to hold on to this, to, why would I believe this if I don't have to? 
um, which I interpret to mean, why would I believe this if I don't have certainty about it? Why would I believe this if I don't have certainty about the young earth creationist, very wooden understanding of Bible genres that I once had, and certainty about the resurrection? It's very interesting, but he's not done yet. So where did this lead me? <clears throat> because the answer to those questions are that you have there's a lot of there's a lot of fear of what you what you might lose or experience but there exactly. there are some things to gain yeah. um if you go to the other side yeah there are and we responded um <clears throat> probably nine months ago, to a genetically modified skeptic thing where he was talking about Pascal's wager, and he was talking about how actually it can go the other way. Look at what you miss out on if you're a Christian. And he talked about having sex with whoever you want, having views about homosexuality. You know, um, <clears throat> one of the atheistic common things that, that I hear that comes up in this later on in the video, we're not going to go much further, but is he says, you know, we talk about the moral type stuff, the moral argument type stuff. I'm the people that I know who who are Christians are like still good people. They're faithful. That they didn't like my marriage isn't falling apart. In fact, in some ways I think my marriage is, you know, going to be better because of this. And I don't quite know what to teach my kids now, but but I think it's a more genuine relationship and all these kind of things. And his point is, he had been told growing up this is what he says that people had told him, "Why if God wasn't real, I'd be doing drugs right now or something." And he said his response was, no, you wouldn't. You'd be normal. And that's what we hear. We, we, you know, Dan Barker says that all the time. Well, you, you think that if you, if you found out now that, that God didn't exist, that, that you would suddenly start murdering and raping and doing all these kind of things? No, you wouldn't start murdering and, and stealing and, and living these immoral lives. That's not the point. That is not the point. This misses the point entirely. And I think he understands this because he said he thought there was something uh, powerful about the moral argument. It just didn't ultimately, it wasn't clinching for him. But I think you would get this. That's that's not that may be what some Christians in your church back home thought or said. But the moral argument, as it's most commonly presented by guys like Ravi Zacharias and Lee Strobel and all these others that you mentioned, the the moral argument is: Yeah, you may live moral lives. Uh, non Christians live moral lives. Christians can live immoral lives. That's not the point. The point is: What is your foundation for morality? What is the ontological foundation? For morality, that's the issue. But but I heard a couple of these things that did sound a bit like um, your typical atheist retorts. And and I want to say I don't think that atheists are necessarily terrible parents. There's atheists that are as good a parents as I am, probably uh, from a human perspective, right? Uh, but um, but I, I just think that when we look at this thing and we back out of it, what we see is, and this goes right, it goes so well on the heels of the last episode. If I don't have certainty, well, then why would I believe these things? Look, you don't have certainty that the chair you're sitting in is going to hold you. You don't have certainty that, you, that, that the whole history of the world wasn't created five minutes ago and put into your brain. You can't have certain Cartesian certainty about much of anything. The question is, do you have good evidence? Do you have sufficient evidence to believe? And here's where modern iterations of Pascal's Wager can be helpful. I haven't, I never use Pascal's Wager. You know, Pascal's Wager is the idea that it's safer to believe than not to, right, because of what's at stake. If you're not sure about what to believe, you should err on the side of Christianity because if uh, Christianity is false, but you believe Christianity all your life, well, then you're, then you're, uh, you didn't lose anything in eternity. But if Christianity is true and you didn't believe it, now, now you've got hell to pay, right? Um, 
<clears throat> I've never really used Pascal's wager, but I'll tell you this much. There is a modern iteration of it that says if you can be anywhere close to 50% based on the arguments, based on the evidence, you don't have to have certainty. If you can be anywhere near that, then, yeah, now there's good reason to believe. Now, um, he says, I couldn't bring myself to believe now. I couldn't force it. Uh, He says he's open for God to reveal himself. I pray that happens to you in a way that is undeniable. But every physical object and every concept in the universe can be used as a part of a reason to believe that God exists. And let me give you the simplest apologetic you've ever heard. Nobody ever uses this. This is the simplest apologetic you'll, you'll ever hear. If there's any reason to believe that God exists, if God exists, and he created thinking persons, or he created with the intention of thinking persons evolving, then would, doesn't that indicate he would want to communicate with them somehow? Okay? If you can think that's plausible, then where would you look? Maybe the biggest religions in the history of the, of the world? And see what they have to offer? And evaluate those? Now you got the five major world religions, and take a look at those. Well, um, if you look at those, I think, number one, Christianity stands up evidentially to the rest. But one of those religions actually has a guy who impacted the history of the world like never before and taught a message of peace and love that we emulate today in Western society. A man who, so far as we know, never wrote anything down, but whose words have changed the course of history. The most influential human who's ever lived. If I, if I think that God exists and plausibly would want to communicate with us about himself, and I do a simple look at the religions of the world, I come pretty quickly down to Jesus. And there's something about Jesus that Rhett said. He said it was like this tone that resonated with him. Even without the evidence, there's this tone that resonated with him. Yeah, I've got the evidence and that tone. See, for me... And, and I get this isn't everybody, but for me, I have tried to do that experiment too of putting myself in that place of, well, if I imagine that it's true, what does that feel like? And, and, and I have to say, for me personally, and maybe this isn't everybody, it's like there's this constant tapping on the shoulder. Yeah, but, but I'm right here. Yeah, I'm right here. I'm not saying I've ever physically had a tangible experience of God or heard his voice audibly, but it's like, hey, wake up. I'm still here. Or just out of my peripheral vision, I'm still over here. Hey, you're ignoring me, but I'm over here. You know, I, I can't do it. I can't get myself there with or without evidence. I've tried. But <clears throat> perhaps that resonant tone is, is exactly that. You say, well, yeah, but that's what every religion claims. Maybe, but that doesn't mean that one of them is not true. And when you have this evidence on top of that, it's pretty powerful. I didn't want... To reject this, Rhett says. And I believe him. He didn't want that. I think something changed through course of time because we came to this, well, if I don't have to believe this, why, why would I? But if you didn't want to reject this, and I'm taking you at your word, then why did you? Because there's enough evidence that from his own lips, it's reasonable. You're not unreasonable for believing. So come back. It may be that, that you're watching, if you're watching this video now, Rhett, perhaps that's why. Perhaps there was no mistake in you watching this video. But in all likelihood, you never will. And so to those of you who might have been impacted by his words or who are in a similar situation of doubt or who 
his message resonated with you because you can track with it. Um, come back. Come back. There's enough good reason to believe. And by the way, <coughs> he mentioned that there was something liberating and, and uh, you know, almost, I don't know if he said this word, but pleasurable and satisfying about finally rejecting. Can I tell you that is that that's just human psychology. You know, there are people who become Calvinists who were not Calvinists. There are people who reject Calvinism who were Calvinists. There are people who move on other issues who, who experience that same thing. Uh, that, that's just a part of human psychology. That's not like an indication that you're necessarily on the right track. And uh, the problem is, once you experience that, it's hard, it's hard to forget that feeling of liberation. But that feeling of liberation is not evidential. And that's important. If you'd like to talk to me about any of your doubts or concerns, you can contact me at Braxton at TrinityRadio.org. And if by any chance, Rhett, you ever see this or Link, I want you to know that even though I don't know you, I love you. It hurts. It hurts because I felt like I knew you. I felt like you were in my tribe, man. And uh, I hope that I haven't misrepresented you. I'm sure it's going to seem at some point that I did because we disagree. But this is just the voice of somebody crying out from the waves of the internet, the wilderness of the internet, calling out to you. Come home. Come home. And I'll see the rest of you next time on Trinity Radio.